I would say what he said is right. 85% of candidates come out of coding academies, find a job. How many of them are pushing through the three-year mark? I don't know. I don't have most of that, right? So the first three years are very crucial um, for a software engineer. Welcome everyone to the Tech Guide Podcast, where we give actual advice to those wanting to break into tech or are looking for their next gig. We have Anish on the podcast today. Welcome, Anish. Super excited to have you on today to talk about your career advice for those wanting to be software engineers. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me and hello, everybody. Yes, it's going to be a great conversation. And whenever I have a software engineer on here, I always love hearing about like how they got so passionate about technology or how they were first introduced to technology because they always have a device they fell in love with. If it's like a Nintendo computer they were interested in, a program they learned. So for you, was there like a specific moment in time you remember falling in love with like technology and coding? Yes, actually, I, I started quite early, like in the 2000s. So mm. we didn't have devices like this then, right? What I saw was a computer game in a carnival called Dave, which is a DOS computer game. I saw it and then I was thinking, what if I could make it? I could make something like it. So that was the beginning of it. That's when I decided to change my thought process from becoming a teacher to a computer engineer. Computer science was quite new. I mean, in the sense, in schools and things like that. Yeah. Not very new, but relatively new, right? Computer science and programming is relatively new. I actually appeared for a state examination and got qualified to be in a government college. And that's how I became an engineer. I didn't pay much uh, to be an engineer. Lucky me. I don't <laughs> think that works anymore. So... So that's, that's the beginning uh, of it. So you, it started out at a, at a carnival where you found a game that you love. Yes. Is that what I heard? It was on a, at the carnival, I saw a game and then uh, I thought, this is cool. What, yeah. if, what, what, what if I could uh, build something like this? But I never built any computer games yet. That, that is very fair. And I do want to talk about coding as like a general thing. That's going to be a big conversation for today. And we're going to talk about coding academies because you're a mentor at coding academies. You've been involved with coding academies. A little bit about coding academies. And I grabbed this stat to really kick us off because around 86% of coding bootcamp graduates found jobs within 180 days of completion of completing a bootcamp. I'm curious, can you talk to a little bit more about the value of coding academies? If someone's thinking, I don't know if I want to do a coding academy, what would be your pitch on why you should consider one? One, one. One uh, main uh, thing I could think about Coding Academy is that they are more tailored towards finding a job. They are mm. not tailored towards teaching you about science. Fair, uh, because those who are going to Coding Academies have that the mindset of breaking into tech or getting into tech to make money, probably as the primary motive. And mm -hmm. that's fair, right? Coding academies are tailored towards that is what I think. So they kind of pick and teach you things yeah. through a short curriculum, which is, which would help you land a job really quickly. For example, 
some of the coding academies I have mentored, I they react, which is really hot web development. When you look at the number of jobs available for, available for React versus number of jobs available for C, that's where they pick. Traditional schools are, I would say, is a little different. They are more on teaching rather than finding a job, which is actually mm. bad. If they, both of them can benefit from the success of the other, right? Yeah. And, uh, and figure out or just, just have a balance is what my take is, right? So I would say what he said is right. 85% of candidates who come out of coding academies find job. How many of them are pushing through the three-year mark? I don't know. I don't mm -hmm. have of that, right? So the first three years are very crucial um, for a software engineer. Uh, those numbers are also something Coding academies are pretty new. So it's very yes. recent. So those numbers we may get in next five or six years uh, to see where these folks are, these 85 yeah. or 100 folks are with respect to, with respect to being in uh, leadership positions in different companies or with respect to becoming managers or leaders and, and whatnot. To answer your question, coding academies have a very pin uh, target. That's to find your job in tech. They're very good at it. They're very good at it, which I have seen. Yeah. Way. yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious. Of course, I have to ask the question. Why like the first three years like so critical in that's, someone's that's, career? Yeah. So the first three years for a software engineer, I wouldn't be able to tell about anybody else. So the motive behind you becoming, or you want to break into tech, that kind of veer off in the first several months. And that's mm. when you, ha you have to hit the hard reality because coding academy teaches you for nine months, but this career is constant learning of 90 months. For other jobs, right? There is no stop in, I started there. For me, I started. Uh, building software in C++ for four years. And then I moved to Windows development, built uh, machines in healthcare, like MRI machines and things like that. Yeah. Uh, built uh, road software for that. I didn't want to move into web development and recession made me move into it. And then I left that, I learned this, and then some of the technologies I learned, they died. So it's a constantly evolving and changing space. So that is the reason why you say the first three years you sort of would figure out it, it suits you well. If you are in, for example, writing code, do you enjoy doing it? Mm -hmm. Do you want to pursue that? Or if you are in, if you are focusing on becoming a leader, do you want to become a staff engineer? You want to become a project manager eventually? And then do you enjoy leading people? Those sort of things will come out after that first three-year period. The first three-year period is, I generally think, what I do is prime. What I build is the best. Yeah. The language I use is the top. That, yeah, that's yeah. generally what I felt. I'm like, I'm C++. This is the best language. In, right? I know, in Java. Yeah. That's what I thought, right? So then eventually, you mature enough to see through things and then you see 
at the end of the day, engineers do is do the job, but it's, it's just tools. Right? Yeah. Which is a framework. So that's what my thought about the initial phase of your career, that when you literally get shaped up uh, and then you sort of, sometimes you feel like you are not cut out for this. Sometimes you feel like, yeah, I can push through this. Yeah, that's what I think you made an important point too, because a lot of people probably do go into software engineering because it is such a high paying job. I don't know what the right out of like school starting wages, but it's high. It's probably six figs for a lot of different really? companies. And so it's those first three years where you're really doing the hard jobs where it's okay. Yeah, I'm getting paid a lot, but I'm not feeling the value of here. I want to talk about like getting a mentor within the first three years within you job, you hop into a software engineering role. Like how important is it for someone to find a mentor to like really pull themselves out of it? Is it important in a software engineering role or how do you approach that? It is important. Mm -hmm. Some shape or form, you, it is very important to have. At the time when I was right out of college and looking for a job in 2004, I would say, I, I didn't know, or nobody told me, hey, you need to have a mentor, you have to post uh, or look for jobs here or there. Yeah. I was just lucky to find a job, right? Some job. So having a mentor will help you take away some of those pain points. That's what I'm yeah. saying. Where am I going? What am I doing with this? How do I handle the pressure, right? A junior engineer feel the pressure, right? The pressure of delivering things. I mean, everybody feel pressure, right? Yeah, in computer science in general, in IT field in general, but junior engineers feel that a lot more, right? Uh, constant change is happening to the work environment, constant pressure on delivering things, things breaking, right? Yes. Yeah. You not be very used to. Having a quality mentor would help, right? Mm. Some people are lucky to have them in, for example, in their work environment itself. Some people are not. Having, I, since I um, contributed to a coding academy and I have some community building experience, I have noticed certain, certain new startups which spun in the space provide interesting mentorship. For example, Mentor Mentoring Club, which mm. is a startup, which is non-profit. So the type of mentors they have, look at their profiles, amazing. Folks who are from top hundred companies who are in for sure, right? So I would suggest students to go look there if they can find one within their circle. Yeah, and I want to talk about a coding boot camp as well that may provide some mentorship. But you're going to provide light on that. Let's talk about the .NET Foundation, which is a nonprofit that you are involved with. Can you tell us a little bit more about .NET Foundation, the coding boot camp that is? Okay, so .NET uh, Foundation is a is a nonprofit organization which actually builds and promotes open source software pertaining to .NET. So mostly, it's a nonprofit. That's a key thing, right? And mm -hmm. it's open source, but mostly promote, but mostly promoting open source software closer to .NET. When I say .NET, things you write with C-Sharp, Azure, 
building WPF or, or libraries in .NET, libraries in C-Sharp and things like that, right? And they do have an education committee, which actually uh, works with certain coding academies to uh, give sponsorship to students who are in need, right? But they don't have a coding academy as such, right? Mm. The coding academy where I have contributed to is a New York-based in-person coding academy called Pursuit.org, which is located in Paris. Interesting. And yeah, what are some of the resources they provide students? If someone's like signing up, they're like, hey, like I'm going to do this. This is like what I want to do. Can you tell a little bit more about like the mentorship that they would get or some of the resources that would be provided to them? Sure. In the beginning, uh, generally, there are multiple levels of interview. Pursuit, Pursuit, which is the coding academy I contributed to. I wasn't teaching as such, but I was mentoring in mm -hmm. different capacity, mentoring with uh, fellows capstone projects, mentoring, um, um, you know, with their questions, helping them with the mock interviews, behavioral and technical interviews, and even helping in recruiting folks into the program. This organization has a very unique business model. Yeah. They, they don't take money up front like other academies. Instead, they actually wait for you to get a job. It could be after two years you're getting it. could be after five. I don't know. Yeah. But, yeah. The, but the deal is you get the job in the first one year, 10% of what you make is what they make. That's how the deal is. That's how it works. It's not a non-profit. It's sort of a non-profit backed by uh, BlackRock and backed by Google and back, backed by several you know, companies like City and all. So the resources, what they provide are, are two friends. One is uh, they have uh, full-time uh, teachers. Um, I believe the program is nine months. And yeah. they have, as I said, mock interviews done by interesting folks across the industry. Come from Uber, they are managers in Uber. They, yeah. they are managers in, in some of the big company, Google, and they interview them. And they get to go through the mock interviews. They get to go through the, the technical interviews and plenty of them, right? And after the program, once they graduate, there is an after uh, graduation support to build a online persona, online, online uh, presence, build a profile and help them land job, find jobs, uh, finding job listing. So the academy works with them till they find the job. I like which, that. Which is what should be the purpose of recording academy in my, in my take. If they, if beyond teaching, at the end of the day, they sort of make sure that most of the folks land on jobs. So the resources, as I said, they have their own office space. They get computers and laptops mm -hmm. and things like that. And they have full-time curriculum. And I think in pandemic, they go online and all, and all of that. But they were in person, like a school, in person curriculum and teachers from full-time teachers and volunteer teachers 
right? And after the yeah. graduation, they have capstone projects and this sort of help. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit more about uh, careers and jobs within this field. Because the Bureau of Labor Statistics predicts a 22% growth in the field from 2019 to 2029, which is huge. Can you tell us like what's one challenge that will come though with being a software engineer in the future? Yeah, I, which I already mentioned. It's a four-hour change field. Mm. And, uh, a consistent and a constant learning. It's, that's the biggest challenge we have, right? You stick around for long enough, then you see more and more changes happening. For example, there is, there is AI coding yeah. tools, right? And then people are like, oh, it's going to take my job. It's going to take people who are working on Excel. It's going to take the job of, of people who like SQL queries. Mm -hmm. Those sort of things are, AI is a challenge, I would say. Take away some portions of software engineering jobs for sure. Other thing is this constant learning, which can be eventually tiring, right? Mm. It changes. Always changing. There is never an end to it. And beyond that, I think this is a very secure uh, profession where the number of jobs are, um, are a lot and it's con constantly growing. Recessions could affect them, but it always bounces back. I went through yeah. recession, recession in 2008 and I switched jobs during that time as well. So I have seen the ups and downs of this career. So I would say you're right. It's going to create more jobs. And why? Because everything is tech. Yep. <laughs> that is. Now they say sleep tech. What is it? Mantras. Yeah, it literally. Not, right? What is not tech? Exactly. The pillow, the pillow will calculate whether how long you want to sleep, right? And they put something in it. See, then they need a software to do it. Exactly. So, but they, they want to see the dashboard. They want to build an app for the Apple Watch and show them how long they slept, right? Software engineer is Yeah. This is going to grow. It's, it's not yeah. That's what I think is like so cool about being a software engineer is like that sleep tech. I'm a huge fan of eight sleep. I have a whoop myself. I'm very big into sleep tech. So no hate on sleep tech to anyone listening. But yeah, I think it's so cool because software engineers, they're able to build like this dashboards and stuff. And you got like the job's not going to be replaced and you are going to use AI in some sense. And that's what I want to ask is like, how can a software engineer use AI to complement their like day-to-day -day lifestyle? Adapt and change is what I would say. Um, rather than oppose, so I have used I have used this copilot at work from the very beginning. I was lucky enough to you to have a license because as part of as being a Microsoft MVP gave me a license yeah. to use copilot. Right, so I have seen the capability it has. But at the end of the day, all of these AI tools, in my opinion. What I see with respect to coding is that they complement rather than they're not autopilot. They're just compiling. That's why they name it that way. So they help you in writing code, which you generally don't like to write, sort of. Yeah. You write a switch statement. You don't really, you, you know what you're writing. There is nothing big going on there. It feels that it is actually great. It that feels awesome. awesome. You know, it, 
it sort of helps sometimes with some of the tasks. At the end of the day, something very unique you're doing, it doesn't help. I mean, yeah. you can do suggestions. Yeah. It doesn't really help. For me, I say use that as a friend mm -hmm. rather than as a challenge, which is going to take away your job. No, it's, it's yet not capable. I'm not saying it's no. yet not capable. I don't foresee that's happening anytime in the future either. I love that. Yeah, because we talked about the challenges of what a software engineer might experience. We can we also talk about like the opportunities. I like to be opportunistic. I like to be optimistic. What are some of the opportunities ahead for the software engineering field that you, you foresee? Opportun new opportunities is what you're asking about? Yeah, like what are some new opportunities or some so things that just that you know? Anything related to AI is a new opportunity. It's a pretty yeah. cool area. Uh, Web3 is a cool, cool area. Virtual reality. Uh, cool thing. Cryptocurrency was cool. I don't think it is cool anymore. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the technology behind it, I mean, some people did some bad. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't say that, that what goes behind the scenes is bad. Mm -hmm. uh, it may come back up. It, there is There are certain instances of bad elements. See, one banging institution goes down doesn't mean that all the banks are bad. Right? Yeah. But the hardest and the most interesting is prompt engineering, in my opinion, mm. is, uh, which is something people talk a lot about, right? How to not really train an AI model. Prompt engineering is not that. It's just, just use the language and the tokens properly and arrange them in a way that you get a better response. That is something I have seen, I mean, at least in LinkedIn, is getting a big push and people who are not trained in tech are also jumping on that wagon. Yep. Too. So folks are interested in learning that, which is easier for them to learn because they don't have to really write any code and mm. it's much more easy. For example, a marketing fellow uh, can jump on this prompt engineering thing and get a better result if we get, if we get really good at it. Yep. Yeah. And even if you're not a prompt and even not being a prompt engineer, it's so important to be good at the chat GPT prompts um, because you can get so you can get way better answers by just telling sure. them something like a persona, like an employee size that you're targeting. Um, so sure. it is very important to get specific and it you is. are doing a little bit of prompt engineering, but not an official job title. It is very, very important. And there are tools built around it. I mean, I have seen some uh, folks feeding SQL databases and converting them into tokens and stuff like that. And you just massage the prompt engineering instead of really training them. Training models are really expensive. So use the prompt engineering and then some caching mechanism on top of it, along with certain tools. There yeah. are a lot of startups in that area. Uh, some of the tools built by startups to build something which is very sorry, like a simulation to an actual training of a model. I have seen yep. that. So, for example, you feed Chat GPT your organization's data and let it talk to you, right? Those sort of things people have been trying using OpenAI's, not Chat GPT, actually, I'm saying the models behind it. 
some of which are exposed through Microsoft Azure to, to train and get better information. Yeah. All of these have, I mean, not a lot of programming needed, but the, these all present to folks who want to break into tech, but not so much into coding yeah. or doesn't like to code. These are areas where they can, they can uh, try and uh, see if they like it. Yeah. I feel like in the future too, a prompt engineer is going to pay very well. I've seen some AI jobs with Netflix and like all these AI, they're paid up to like 900K or something insane. But I bet a prompt engineer, there'll be, I know there'll be a job post soon where they get paid up to like 200K and there'll be like no technical skills required. Just be good at the prompts. <laughs> that is always the saying of the car. I think Gardner came up with this car. Well, there is a, something is introduced, just goes over a hype that comes yes. all the way down. And then there is a play to your productivity, right? So here he is it's going up. So 900K jobs, good today. I'm unsure whether it's going to be there in two years down the line, but I'm saying it's right now because then the skills they're seeking, the industry is lacking. Yep. You paid what you ask, right? When that gap is filled, then they become regular software engineers, I guess. Yeah. And I don't know how, like, what, how I feel about AI right now is like basically that curve that you talked about. I feel like we're definitely on the up, but like, I can also sense that people are not talking about ChatGPT as much on LinkedIn. About four months ago, it was crazy, crazy. on LinkedIn, all the ChatGPT stuff. It, and it's honestly died down. So I don't think, I don't think we're on the down yet, but there might be. I don't think it'll be an AI winter per se, but the hype is starting to die down. And I've noticed yes. it on LinkedIn. I don't yes. know if you've noticed that, but I have seen uh, I have seen in LinkedIn every other post was you are using Chat GPT wrong. Oh, it's awful. Yeah, my ways to use it, right? So <laughs> all the influences, I mean LinkedIn influences. I, I don't know if that word is right, influencer in LinkedIn, but it is actually it's right. it's, there are influences. So they were all they all jammed into this wagon. And they enjoy that, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it came down. Yeah, but it's still a great, it's still a great industry to be in. Everyone's talking about it and it, it will not go away. And I do want to talk about it just in our last little segment here. So you need the hard skills to obviously be a great engineer. You need to be able to know your SQL, React, C++, all of these different ways. But can you tell us like two soft skills someone should acquire to be a great software engineer as well? I would say you don't stay a software engineer forever. So mm. leadership skills is leadership skill and and ability, the social skills, right? So you can be a you can be a basement engineer, right? Forever. I mean, yes, of course, we see that in the movies that they have basement. basement. Yeah, that's not true. For software engineers, we are, most of the software engineers are not that super smart, just like mm. regular people so who happen to have this job, uses their social skills equally to, to get to where we get to today, right? Beyond that hard skills, I would highly recommend grabbing the social skills, ability to convey what is in your mind. Yep. In a non-engineering way. That's, I always say, take your engineer out before yeah. you 
to people who are not engineers, right? So they don't want to hear your engineer. They want to hear how things work. They don't want to, they don't want to hear what goes behind the scenes. So that is an extremely important skill, skill to communicate with your team. And so nowadays I see in interviews, they use this behavioral interview. I mean, I don't know how successful they are because people are on their best behavior when they are. Yeah. So, um, I don't think that really works. Like, you know, behavioral interviews really don't work. Um, but they still do it anyways. But that's the essence of those interviews are to find those soft skills, right? To, to be an, a, a, a team player, right? Mm. Your skills and your technology and everything else behind and helping each other. So that's how generally teams thrive. Not one superstar engineer can uh, run a company. Exactly. He doesn't know how to play well with the team. He has to go out. So that's what my take on it, right? That's the main and most important soft skill. Other things are, I would say, I look for ways to uh, grow beyond. Beyond, I look for ways to grow beyond your regular regular call of duties, such as get involved into other activities yep. uh, across teams, across the organizations, beyond the company you're working on and build a strong network because um, we, yeah, I don't know whether how long, how hard loyalty you have with your company. Uh, one recession comes yeah. that you get to wipe that. Right. So it's always important to build a strong network beyond the organizations you are. And that's another skill you need to develop. Sustain. I love that. And yeah, everyone always talks about networking on here. It is so important. And like someone young in their career, they might be like, oh, I hear networking all the time, but it is like so important. And our podcast that we had last week with Ajay Yeast, he's a software engineer at Walmart. And he also said what you, first echoed is really like you need to take these engineering problems and put into business terms that everyone can understand because an engineering mind might work a lot different than a marketing ops or sales mind and so being able to convey that's a real key uh, to having a successful career yes well we will wrap it up there that was awesome advice uh, thank you so much anish for joining us today where can people get in touch with you learn a little bit more about you and say hey i listened to the episode loved what you do LinkedIn probably is one place they can find me and look for my, look for my name and I should be the first one, I guess. <laughs> so that's one place they can find me and they can also look up Startup Plus, which is a community I'm building in New York City. Um, I started building it during the pandemic when people were afraid to come out of their basement and person, right? So I started building this in-person events. I did 50 of them in New York That's City. Awesome. I have pitch events uh, in New York City. I have networking events in New York City. I currently have about 10,000 members across different event platforms, such as Meetup, Eventbrite, and LinkedIn, and all of that. That's, that's where some of my work, outside of my work, is involved. And I also, I'm also building a small application called Remito, 
which which helps you compare international money transfer providers. You know what their fees are and who is giving you better rate and things like that. So which the app actually supports about sixty countries right now, which is also one of my passion projects. And we can look that up, Revitor app um, online. Well, you have a lot going on. Everyone definitely reach out to Anish. You are awesome. So thank you so much for joining us today. Awesome episode. Thank you, Ryan. It's wonderful to be here.